mindfulness, a noun, a word we often hear in healthcare. What does it actually mean? According to a common definition on Google, mindfulness is a mental state achieved by focusing one's awareness on the present moment while calmly acknowledging and accepting one's feelings, thoughts, and bodily sensations used as a therapeutic technique. Some have described mindfulness as complacency, Buddhism in disguise, or a waste of time. But what does mindfulness really mean? Perfect. Welcome back, everybody, to our podcast. We're on episode 11 now, which is so exciting. Halfway to 22, Ken. <laughs> I know. Who would have thought? And my name is K-Dog. <laughs> my name is Lissy Beb. No, my name's Alyssa, but you can call me Lissy Beb or A-Dog because I don't know why K-Dog called himself K-Dog. You, you're special K, aren't you, Ken? I am. So fuck off, Sultana Baron. <laughs> So here we are coming to you guys while you're enjoying your breakfast um, or your dinner, wherever you are in the world. But anyway, we are discussing the topic today of mindfulness. Indeed we are. And whilst we had a very chaotic beginning to the show, we're actually more (laughs) interested in talking about what our definitions of mindfulness are because we hear it all the time. Mind you, I have actually used this topic in some of my classes with my students. And when I do ask them what their definition or what they think mindfulness is, usually the number one thing that pops up is, oh, mindfulness. You know, your mind is, is full of, of things, your, you know, mind, mindfulness. Yeah, my definition of mindfulness is actually quite the opposite. So if I, it's more like the Marie Kondo of the mind approach, you know, decluttering the mind, so to speak. And I'm very much a practitioner of believing that it's being in the present moment. Like what's your brief definition of mindfulness? It is. It's being, being in the moment, being in the now and being aware of your five senses and your surroundings at that one time in place. Indeed. And without further ado, we have the mindfulness guru herself who's joining us to talk about this because I think it's fair to say that our knowledge is definitely complemented by her superior understanding of the topic. So we've got our self-love coach, Alex, who is joining us from Canada, although she's currently living in Italy at the moment. And yes, without further ado, we are so excited to welcome Alex. Hello, Alex. Thank you so much for jumping onto our podcast. We're so happy to have you here. So just tell us a little bit about yourself. I feel like this is a question that is always like, where do I even start? Um, so this past Give it a good crack. year, <laughs> for everyone though, it's like always, what do I even say? So this past year has been just a complete change in so many things for me. I have always been really, I guess, focused in the wellness world. And I knew that I wanted to make a career out of that, but I didn't know where to begin. So... I can, I guess, tell you a little bit about my story with self-love and why I chose to become a self-love coach. So when I was a child, I was a very shy, like, 
low confidence or with low confidence like child and basically I went through a difficult period when my parents divorced and I gained a bunch of weight so I was really overweight and bullied and you know the, all that stuff kind of don't want to go into too much detail but I uh, was just a very shy kid and I never believed in myself and I always used to like envision my future and it was not what I like what I'm living right now it was just very dull future because I never believed that I could accomplish anything and that was basically what I went through for years you know when you're bullied when you're like the middle child you know you're always kind of a person that's I guess um overlooked um so then I went through a big like weight loss journey when I was around 17 I didn't know how to begin so I kind of just restricted my calories to 900 a day and obviously that's wow not even enough for like a non-active person and that was actually active as well so was that mostly just bread and oxygen? <laughs> yeah, it was like crackers, hummus, like celery. It was just snacks all day. I didn't really have like meals. And I lost like 23 kilos or something oh, like that. Oh, wow. Well, you know what? On one hand, congratulations for weight loss. Yeah, it was definitely a big um, like accomplishment in that and also everyone was always like, yeah, congrats and whatnot. And I was happy, but it... It brought on a bunch of health issues because of how abruptly it was and also the way I did it. Obviously, eating 900 calories a day and working out and just like constricting, it's not obviously a good way to lose weight. So I didn't know anything about that. I just knew that. And I didn't know anything about health and nutrition as well. I met a girl that she taught me a lot about nutrition. And she's like, you need to start eating more than that, at least 1,200. And I started to like up my calories, but... I was really restrictive. I remember even on birthdays, I would eat like a very, like a one millimeter piece of cake. That was, <laughs> yeah, it was, I was like, I just wanted a taste of the cake. The corner of the cake. Um, that was me and people were always like, oh, come on, you need to live more. And I'm like, no, like, I don't want to gain weight. And it was just such a, I guess, what's the, what's the word? Like a scarcity mentality of everything, you know? Just, yeah. Yes. That was my life for a couple of years. And then I went vegan and I think veganism is great. I'm still vegan, but the way that I did it was just like kind of as an excuse to, um, to not eat a lot of stuff. So it was like, okay, I'm going to lose weight. Yeah. I'm going to go vegan. Yeah. It wasn't really a like animal choice. Now it is. It's more for animal cruelty environments and stuff. But the beginning it was like, this will help me lose weight. So I did that and I kind of, or first time I'm vegetarian actually, but the first year it was like on and off. Yeah. Then I went vegan. I gained 15 pounds because I was like, yeah, this is a vegan cake that means it's healthy. So I would eat, you know, everything. Sometimes it's like, if it says organic or vegan or, um, I don't know, like you something that's like very healthy or labeled healthy. It's like, oh yeah, that's fine. I can eat the whole cake because it's vegan. It's like, oh yeah, God. exactly. Oh, it's vegan. <laughs> it's not like actually unhealthy. Yeah. But, but everyone forgets the, the caloric density of the food you're eating. And the sugar. Yeah. So the sugar. <laughs> yeah. All of that stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's like when someone says that like, oh, bananas are healthy and then proceeds to eat a box of them. Yeah, uh, exactly. Bananas are healthy, but eating 25 bananas. Correct. Within reason. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, whilst this is obviously not about nutrition, so to continue off what Alyssa was saying, so um, obviously you've had a very transformative decade and it sounds like the last year in your life is particularly big for you too. So what happened in order for you to become a self-love coach? So I guess after that, those couple years of like fluctuating weight, I was on, you know, 
going up and down constantly. And then I was actually in a mentally abusive relationship, which was not helpful as well. So just like a bunch of fluctuations mentally and physically. Once I left that relationship and really just started to look within, I realized that like, it's not about, well, first of all, it's it's not about pleasing others because that was kind of what I was doing in the relationship, but also like, it's about listening to your body and being intuitive with what you're eating. So I really completely changed my health journey from, I guess the point of when I left that relationship because I just started to eat the way I wanted and not the way he was telling me or the way that I thought I had to eat. Um, he was a personal trainer and like uh, helped people with nutrition as well. So he kind of gave me like plans that I had to eat every single day. And that was um, a big change for me once I left that relationship. So that was two, almost two years ago now. Um, and then in October of 2018, when I, when I joined Bib, it was like, I already knew a lot of nutrition. Nutrition has always been a big area of expertise for me. And Bib is the babes in business. Yes. And well, we work with the Health Emporium, so it's a holistic health platform. And so yeah. I learned a lot about the primary food, which is what we call it in um, IIN. So primary food is like the food that you feed your body with that's not actual food. So yep. it's like your thoughts, your environment, your relationships, your career, all the stuff that surrounds you basically. So that is like your primary food and it's what influences your, your life more than actual food. So I started to focus more on that and just like the food part has always been easy for me. I already knew kind of like what's healthy, what's not, you know, but I didn't know how to listen to my body and how to actually like, um, I guess, Stop focus on the mindfulness part. Yeah. 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 It sounds to me like you've really taken the time to better understand not only what's good for you in terms of what you consume physically, but also how you relate to others and how you're trying to put yourself first. Does that sound right? Mm -hmm. For sure. Yeah. So in my experience with self-love, I came to this very recently at the end of last year and for a long time to me, it just seemed like such a wanky concept. Can you tell us a little bit about what it means to be a self-love coach? For sure. So a coach in general is kind of like a therapist and a nutritionist in one. Yep. So we're not there to tell you like what to eat, what, what not to eat or what to do, what not to do, but we're there to listen kind of like a therapist, but also provide recommendations and advice and, you know, insight. So that's um, what I do as a coach. The reason um, I chose to focus mostly on self-love is because I think that once you learn to accept and love yourself truly, everything else kind of follows. So you start Mm -hmm. listening more to your intuition and what you want to eat. You start kind of learning more what kind of relationships or who works best for you and maybe choosing a career that you really love because you want to, you know, focus on what actually brings you joy. So it's all surrounded by love in the end. And I think once you focus first on yourself and loving and actually like, yeah, accepting who you are, then everything else follows. Mm. So I still do focus on a holistic health approach and um, all of like the primary food, but self-love is like the central part of it. Mm. And, and so how do you think that when you, t- when talking about self-love, how does mindfulness come into play and, and I guess connect? How do the two connect together, do you think? Well, 
mindfulness in the end is really just being present. And in order to listen to your intuition and understand what you want and what brings you joy, you need to be present. You need to focus on the moment. So mindfulness in the end, mindfulness is just like this, you know, buzzword that means kind of like meditation or staying in the now, like the book and being being, um, the power of now. We don't listen to our intuition or if we're not in the present moment, then we can't actually access that power. Mm. You know, it's interesting because I think for a lot of people, we talk about being present, but we've been trained from such a young age to be constantly thinking ahead, you know, what are your five-year plans? What do you want to do in the future? How do you see yourself when you engage with others and constantly comparing yourself to other people that it can actually be not something that's very simple and easy to understand? What do you think allows people to really separate themselves from future thinking and actually allow them to be in the moment? So actually, they talk about this in Eckhart Tolle. He talks about this in The Power of Now. And it's kind of, I don't know what the term he used exactly, but he basically um, explained it as two different like modes in your mind. So you, mm. when you're planning and when you're, I guess, using your past to, I guess, reflect, you go into that part of your mind that you need to like launch yourself into the future or into the past, only for that specific purpose of setting goals and setting out plans and stuff like that. But once you're out of that territory in your mind, go back into the present and live in the moment to actually achieve those goals but you don't need to like launch yourself into the into the future to achieve them so you Mm -hmm. have the goals set and you use visualization to actually achieve them but visualization doesn't mean that you're uh constantly thinking about the future it just means you're imagining your what you want could even be what you want in this moment yeah so Um, in other words does that sound like for example i want to be a head of marketing for a big company, say like, you know, Apple, for instance, you're not comparing. So in that case, would you say you're comparing yourself not to the image of where you want to be, but rather focusing on what you can do in the present in order to make steps to reach that goal and only if it makes you happy? Well, yeah, for sure. All of that. But I think it's more like that you already have it. When you're visualizing, it's as if it's already there. Like you already have achieved it. Because as Mm. Eckhart Tolle says, there's no future past. It's literally, there's only the now. I mean, if you think about it, the only thing that exists truly is right now. What I love, and that's so true though, like the past does not exist and the future does not exist. Like literally we have this moment right now, here and now. And and currently like all of my senses right now within this podcast, you know, it's my... I'm, I'm being mindful of the two of you speaking. I'm, you know, I'm listening in the background actually to the rain. It's actually raining here now, which yay. Like, yes. We had a very dour, depressing talk about the bushfires um, in our last episode. So to actually get the rain is a huge, you know, yeah. source of de-stress. It's been amazing. But, amazing. but what I was, what I was actually going to um, mention was what I love about Eckhart Tolle is that he talks about how, for example, you know, if something you can you can actually change that that emotion that is creeping up in your brain within the within the right now as well. So, for example, if there's a a siren going off outside, like there's a police siren going off outside, and and I'm about to get like annoyed or like angry at like oh like shut up like stop you know that's so frustrating. <laughs> he he talks about sort of bringing yourself back in 
to the now and, and just realizing that, you know, that's an external factor that you can't currently change. It's just an alarm. It's going off. Like, yes, it may be annoying, but that's, that's what you're feeling. Like you are choosing mm-hmm. for that sound to be annoying. So mm. he talks about how to change your emotions like so quickly, like, with, you know, he also talks about like when you're going to sleep to change basically when you wake up, actually, this might've been another book. Anyways, this is also going into mindfulness, but when you're um, falling asleep, instead of thinking, oh my God, I have to wake up in four hours. I'm going to be so tired. When you actually wake up, then you're still going to have that thought because they say the, the thought that we wake up with is the thought that we went to sleep with. Like it's the first thought that mm. comes to mind. So when you go to bed, you're like, oh, I'm going to be so rested tomorrow morning, even with four hours of sleep. So you wake up with that thought. It's like changing your, your chemical, what's the word? Like chemical balances. Yeah, basically, but based on your mindset. Yeah, it's pretty powerful what our words can, can do for us. And actually, um, I was listening just earlier today, a TED talk by the, the author that, that wrote the five second rule book. It's not about germs. Can't remember the name. No, 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 no. Oh my gosh, the five second rule. That's hilarious. No, no, no. Um, it's it's basically you know talking about how human as humans, um, we have all of these ideas and all of these incredible ideas of what we want to do and what we want to how we want to change the world or making a difference. And at the end of the day, you know, a majority of the population do not act. And it, she talks about how you know there's the use the five second rule where if you come up with an idea or you you're maybe at a conference or you're listening to a podcast or you get and you get some inspiration within those five seconds you know do that action right then and there because if five seconds passes by you're never going to do anything about it and you're never going to create that that action i think that you know that's pretty that's pretty powerful as well when you are i guess coming back to the present and and being mindful of where you where you currently are at but making that action to change something or to do something, um, yeah, right then and there, you know, I think that's a lot of things that a lot, or that's, that's important for people to be really mindful of as well. That's the thing, because people always think when my life uh, changes, like when that happens, like they imagine that all of a sudden their life is going to become this like amazing, perfect, aligned. But the yeah. reality is that most people get to like eight years old and then they still haven't done those things that they actually they were going to do which is really sad but and more often than not it's usually related to travel and living abroad yeah definitely like oh i want to live we all need to do that go travel (laughs) how many times do you have people saying oh like i i'm gonna do that or i'm gonna come like we have to go uh, traveling together you have to do this and then you're like yeah that sounds so great we should totally do it and then you never do it and then you never do it yeah Mm. that's also actually another reason as to why you should never wait for people to travel oh yeah i agree you know that relates to something that eckhart toll talks about i actually read his book the a new earth Mm. and uh it does cover a lot of the key points that he discusses in the power of now one thing that i will say that is really important to his talk of mindfulness is being in control of yourself and what you are capable of controlling and it touches a bit upon what you were talking before about Alyssa in that it's about understanding that not everything around you is about you. So if that siren goes off and it's annoying the shit out of you, it's not an attack on you. It's just a siren going off. And so if you can't control it, just 
don't, you know, take it personally, understand that there are other factors at play. The recent bushfires in Australia are a great example of that too. And I think a lot of people have a very understandable feeling of helplessness about what's going on. But when you really switch the mindset and think about it to yourself and go, well, hang on a minute, I can do things that create peace of mind for me in trying to help prevent this tragedy from continuing, whether it be through donations, whether it be through awareness and talk. So I think that's one thing that I've taken away from Eckhart in that he does a very good job of finding ways to tell us to not look at things so critically that weigh us down, but rather to find areas in which we can control in order to better manage our stress. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I think... And, and it sort of also, you know, brings us all, brings us to the question of like bringing mindfulness into classrooms, obviously. And um, there is a, there is a book that is on my to read list as of recent. So the author, Hal Elrod, he has The Miracle Morning and he just, oh, yeah, yeah and, and he just I've read that as well. Oh, amazing book. Such an amazing book. He, he's just recently released one of his new books directed at teachers and students. And he basically has created or these teachers and students have, have into place bringing mindfulness into the classroom. And there's lots of different studies and research that's been done um, for a 30-day period. So essentially 20 days because it's yeah four, four weeks in, in the school weeks that they've implemented it into the classroom and there was some pretty incredible benefits. And I guess that brings me back to the question of how do you think schools could implement mindfulness into the classroom? So my little sister, she's eight years old. Yeah, she's eight years old. <laughs> Wait, no, seven years old. Turning eight. Um, but she actually does yoga in school, which was like so weird for me to hear because when I was little, that was like unheard of. And I actually saw this article in the newspaper of how like, yoga and meditation was banned from the school in southern like usa i think what, texas or something because it was promoting like other cultures to them like they were basically saying that they didn't want to promote eastern um like you know indian um that kind of like lifestyle because it was promoting other cultures and i'm like it's just so sad that there are schools that are there are people in the world that think that but um, it's nice that other schools instead are incorporating it, like my sister's school. I don't know if they do my uh, meditation as well, but I guess in the end, yoga is like essentially um, a sister science of meditation. So they're all, they go hand in hand. Hmm. Would you say that, for example, in physical education, yoga could be implemented there? I think that's where they do it, actually, yeah. Um, like instead of only focusing on like, when I, for example, when I was a little kid, I hated running. Like, absolutely hated it. And I still don't like running, actually. You and me both, girl. <laughs> <laughs> I love, like, lifting weights. I love doing yoga. I love rock climbing. I'm very adventurous. But running, just, I don't think it's the most. I actually don't think it's great for your joints as well and, like, not the best kind of exercise. And what about Sprint swimming? <laughs> swimming, uh, too. I love swimming. <laughs> I, I'd rather, sorry, I'd rather float. <laughs> I'm not competitive swimming. I like swimming in like the ocean. I'll, I'll sign me up to a competitive floating competition and I'm there. Yeah. There we go. Alex, can you, can you talk a bit more about um, yoga? Like, obviously, I understand that yoga is very good for relieving stress within the body. Why do you think it would have importance for children? I think that 
Well, we go through like <sighs> what we usually go through in physical education is really strenuous in the body. And for like a little kid, like I just, I remember doing the bleep test. Uh, the bleep oh test God. That was horrible. <laughs> and that was literally, yeah. Like I, that was a stress test. Exactly. So they're bringing all this stress of like children's lives at such a young age, especially kids who really just don't enjoy it. And yoga is so good for everyone. I think there's so many different types and like it's really inclusive. And also it's um, really good on the body. Everyone who's done yoga, like it's impossible for someone to go to yoga and then feel stressed afterwards. So it's also good for their um, like results at school because they go to yoga and then they go to class and they're feeling like, you know, lot more relaxed and they probably won't you know lash out on other kids as well so less violence in schools so overall it's more about the mindfulness factor than the actual like activity factor i think if we're thinking more about the mental health side yoga for sure is better than doing like running and you know the athletics in school yeah how alex do you think that schools could teach mindfulness in a class of its own so, like, only a class, a lesson for mindfulness. You can think of an alternative if you want. If you think a single class isn't enough, I'm very happy to let your creativity flourish. I think a classroom or, like, an actual lesson per day would, would be good as well. But it could also be, like, a mindfulness room. So, mm-hmm. if people, maybe if children need to, I don't know, take a break from what's going on, they can... They can go into this like mindfulness room where there's meditation pillows and stuff like that. But at the same time, I don't know if children would go with their own, like on their own will. I feel like it would have to be in some way like um, in the schedule. Like they have to take at least ten minutes of mindfulness uh, per day, something like mm-hmm. that. But I don't think they need like maybe a forty-minute class, but could be useful. And I think because we're so taught to like be competitive and just go through like the nine to five so that we're basically trained to live a or to work a normal job and like the nine to five you know lifestyle i think that now things are changing right now people are working online people are working less hours we don't have that same nine to five routine i don't think children need to go through that same like rigorous schedule where they and it doesn't have to be competitive so i think it's really time to change things and like set up some kind of mindfulness I think it's a great idea. And also considering the fact that Finland is potentially going to experiment a little bit with that, with their prime minister talking about Mm -hmm. having four day work weeks, which go for fewer hours. I was just like, amen, sister. You sound like you've got a great plan. But anyways, that's enough from me. I think as well, um, just asking students as well to be aware of their feelings and, and, and getting them to express their feelings and yes, enough as well. I was going to say before. Yeah, yeah, because, um, you know, I think sometimes we don't, we don't recognise, um, you know, how students are feeling. So if they are feeling stressed, for example, because of having too many exams or too much homework, you know, teachers never ask us about, um, you know, how to deal with stress. We're never taught how to deal with stress when we get so much homework from every single teacher that, we, you know, we sort of talk amongst each other and say, did our teachers not talk to each other and realize that they've all given us three assignments due in this on the same day? Like clearly not. Thanks yeah. for the stress. And it's crazy. Also here in Italy, they get, they get like mandatory homework throughout the Christmas break and also the summer break. 
Oh, they're just always doing homework. My students, like in my the school that I teach, it's a private English school, and they're always like, "Yeah, we have so much homework." And I'm like, "That's crazy." We did get homework in Canada as well, but not during the summer break or Christmas break or anything like that. So yeah, it was a lot less. I think that's why it's necessary to have these, yeah, like these times of day where they can just talk about their feelings because we're so taught to like hide our feelings, to not cry, to hold everything in, you know, to just mm. like stay strong and. That's like bullshit. <laughs> it is bullshit. So. You're right. What I loved doing last year was um, when I was teaching English in my academy in, in Madrid, I had, I, I loved my academy because the director of the academy gave me a lot of sort of freedom in, in what I taught and I didn't always have to go off the books or things like that. So for example, when some of the students came into the classroom and they were really tired from school or they were feeling stressed because of exams, I would actually just do a little sort of mindfulness lesson and actually we'd go around in the circle. We'd still be obviously learning English, but we'd go around in the circle and just talk about how we're feeling and talk about, you know, why do you feel stressed and, and, and what we can do at home to, to lessen the stresses of whether it's, you know, too much homework or whether it is not being able to see your friends as, as often as, as you can because your parents are telling you to, to stay at home and, and study. And I felt that that was, they were really positive classes because the students would leave the class not feeling even more stressed with, for example, like, oh my gosh, like, you know, I have to now like remember all of this grammar that I've just been taught from my English class but they could instead leave the classroom and actually feel a bit more, I guess, at peace or, uh, you know, a little bit less stressed than, than when they, than before they walked in the classroom. Yeah. And I think that's just so important to, to, yeah, to implement into every single classroom um, because the students open up to you. They do when, when they, when it feels like, when they feel like you actually care about them and ask them, how are you? Like how actually, how are you really? they will open up to you more and you'll, you'll create such better relationships with the students as well. And I guess for the people that, um, you know, they have never tried mindfulness, but they are willing to give it a go. What would you tell someone that actually wants to try and start it? Like, where do you even start with mindfulness? I think it, the breathing is like step one, because first they have to learn how to get breathe into their diaphragm. It's not like the typical breathing that we're, used to and a lot of people think meditation is like some hippie you know too spiritual woo kind of thing they but do. i think even just yeah getting into uh the breathing first like it's really that's all meditation is in the end so it doesn't have to be like like chanting um sanskrit or whatnot but just <laughs> breathing like this is to be, you know but just even putting on another thing that like really helped me even before I was into spirituality was when I was really, I went through a period of bad anxiety in, I guess, my first couple of years of university. And what I would do was I would put on um, like the Calm app or um, I don't know what the other one is. Now I use Insight Timer and they're just meditation apps and you can put on sleep ones. So I would put on a meditation before I would go to bed and I would fall asleep within minutes. So it's just a guided meditation. So those two, like they're not, they, anyone could do them. You don't have to know how to like meditate or you don't have to be a spiritual person, but it's just basically listening to a, a guided voice help lull you to sleep or into a calm state. So mm. 
Absolutely. I, I also really love Smiling Mind and, and Headspace. They're really, they're two great Headspace, apps, yeah. especially for beginners as well, definitely, because people, some people are always sort of wondering like, yeah, but you know, what even is mindfulness? How do I do it? Where do I start? Like, can someone help me? So yeah, mm-hmm. definitely. In the end, mindfulness is just, like I said, being present and it, people make it seem like it's some, you know, big, difficult term but really it's it's just yeah it's just being present it's just i think yeah it's interesting you should say that because i think it gets thrown around with a lot of buzzwords these days you know veganism organic mindfulness and the real issue with each of them is that they're very misunderstood because they're often promoted by people who do it because of very selfish reasons. It's kind of like, for example, vegans who are genuinely passionate about what they're doing because like you, Alex, it sounds like you're doing veganism, not because of your diet, but um, because you want to lose weight, but rather you're doing it because you see the value it has for your body hormonally and also um, Mm -hmm. organically versus someone who's just going out there being like, I'm a vegan and giving the whole thing a bad name exactly and but like when i actually i've met a few vegans who they're like i'm vegan then i see them eating like a muffin from you know that has obviously eggs and dairy i'm like oh i thought you're vegan I'm like yeah but like i still eat things once in a while and so it's kind of, i mean everyone can do what they want how turn you know use the terms how they want but in the end it's all just like labels and it so is all just labels yeah yeah, but um, yeah, it's mostly because I, I find it just works for my body, and I like I always promote to for people to eat the way that they like their body is uh, thinks is best. You know what works best for you. So, and I guess to wrap up the episode, why is mindfulness so important to implement into our day to day, and what actually are the benefits of of trying this? I think mindfulness is something that can truly change your life because it changes the way that you go about your day, it changes your mindset, but also like some of the benefits you're asking. One, sleep, like for people who are, um, who have insomnia, this person, I don't remember who now, wrote on a Facebook group and there were a lot of people comment, were commenting on it and they said, oh, I have insomnia, like what are some tips? And, and everyone was like, you know, writing kind of, uh, you should take these pills and stuff and whatnot. And it was just all, you know, like the Western medicine kind of thing. And I was like, why don't you do a sleep meditation? And the girl ended up messaging me later. She's like, I tried like doing a sleep meditation and I literally fell asleep in five minutes. She's like, wow, I didn't realize it would work. I'm like, yeah, honestly, I told you, like, it's, it's not people, usually people who have insomnia are because they are, you know, they have thoughts racing in their heads. And if you can clear that, it's not even just like clear in your mind. It's basically just learning how to, to, um, let the thoughts pass because when you're meditating often sometimes when in meditation a thought will come into your mind it's not about like kicking it out it's basically just letting it pass through and that's what you learn it's like a a muscle so Mm. insomnia but also um in iin we were just learning about meditation and mindfulness in the past module and the girl was actually explaining about how um, it's been proven that people like your aging actually is reversed. Um, there's like a, I have to look at my notes and, and explain it, but I don't remember the term. There's basically this like thing that in your brain that shortens as you age and mindfulness, they did like studies 
were shown to help people actually like they were getting longer. And so it was basically reversing aging. Mm. They were, yeah. So like less gray hair, less, you know, the quality of things that happen when you're aging, you know, stress, uh, wrinkles, all that stuff. Yeah. Um, obviously less stress. And I think it also has to do with, like I said, your digestion, when you're in the rest and digest state, you can digest food better. And that means that you can, you know, absorb nutrients better and Absolutely. your body just is overall more healthy. So it's, it's a win-win for every single situation. I, I loved that, Alex. Thank you so much for, for sharing all of your wisdom and, and thank you for jumping onto our podcast. I think our listeners will take away some, some really awesome things um, from everything we've just discussed. And, and I hope that, you know, our listeners try and try mindfulness for, for what it is and give it a go if they haven't already. I mean, Alex has pretty much sold it there. It's like the Gilgamesh project. You found the secret to eternal youth and I'm joking. It's, <laughs> it's really just such a, it's such a great way of just like being just, it takes a lot of stress out of your life and makes you focus on what's really matters to making yourself happy. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. But yeah, Alex, thank you so much for coming on board. You've been amazing. Yeah, thank you. And uh, for all of you, your listeners, they can uh, find me at on Instagram at holisticallyalex, or they can go to my website, which is also holisticallyalex.com. Sounds awesome. Well, uh, we'll actually we'll add all of your links and stuff into um, underneath the episode, so people can find you and um, and connect with you and yeah that's that's awesome thank you so much for joining us it was a pleasure thank you for having me and hope we can do this again soon well that was really good having alex on board to help us better understand mindfulness that was that was really great it was it was great to get a little bit of a you know another another perspective from a self-love coach in the making Mm. itself which is always great to hear I agree. Well, I think that mindfulness definitely is inclusive of the concept of self-love, which is good. Although I got to say, for preparation of this episode, I was actually looking over some disagreements with the whole concept of mindfulness. And one struck out to me, which was really interesting to read. So basically, there was a journalist, his name is Ronald Purser, and he was talking about how he thought that mindfulness was just a coping mechanism against capitalism. And without going too much into, I suppose, the jargon of what he was talking about, basically he summarized his entire piece by saying that mindfulness is sort of sold as this solution to all of our problems that we conceive in our head, that we're basically supposed to gain control of our minds and our emotions through mindfulness, and that somehow we'll be able to thrive amid our capitalist world. And it's just like Kale, Asaiberry's gym memberships, you know, they're all, they're all very, you know, they're all very trendy. They're all very health-centric, but they're not really there to help us deal with the common issues of the world like economical stability health and finance and relationships and he thinks that basically mindfulness is a bit of a i suppose a a shallow trend that doesn't actually give anyone the happiness they think they you know they can get for themselves or helpful for challenging uh, the world we live in you know, I would be interested to hear um, whether this man has, how many times he's practiced it or if he has been consistent in his practice because I think another misconception is how uh, people might be quite quick to judge or quite quick to say, 
um, oh yeah, no, I tried, you know, I tried mindfulness one time and it wasn't for me or I, I didn't see results. I didn't like it or I couldn't, couldn't focus. Um, yeah, not for me. It doesn't work. But I think what's really important and what a lot of people may or may not realize is that it's quite similar to, let's say ex- exercise as an example, you know, we have to go to the, go to the gym, um, you know, four to, f- you know, three to, three to five times a week to start seeing results and start being consistent in our, in our progress and in our strength training or our cardio training, whatever it is. Um, we don't just go to the gym once and, and say, oh yeah, and no, I went to the gym once and, and I, I lifted some weights and I didn't see any results. So, so I, it wasn't for me. Well, it's a bit of a throwback to last week. We can't really go into a, a feeling of mindfulness and then suddenly feel like we've exploded to the point of absolute awareness and focus. It's an ongoing thing. Absolutely. It's just like being at the gym. You can't just simply go from A to B. Well, you can, but there are no, there's no silver bullet to suddenly becoming mindful. No, that, that's it. I think, you know, it's, it's sort of like learn and, you know, like learning to swim, you know, you sort of start mm. at the shallow end and then you just keep gradually, you know, keep gradually um, swimming out into the deeper and the deeper and into the deepest yeah. parts of the ocean. <laughs> and, then, well, yeah. um, and then you become like, the ocean. You, well, yeah, I suppose you do. <laughs> I think be mindful of the sharks, but you know, I think it's, <laughs> I like how you said it too in one of our earlier discussions that mindfulness is a technique. It doesn't, it's not going to, it's not the door to happiness. It's what yeah. did you say it was. Um, it's, it's more so a accelerator accelerator. It's more so an accelerator or, you know, a pathway in, into, into finding our happiness and, and our, and our happiness once again, as I always tell everyone is inside us all of the time. it's all of the time inside us. Um, but you know, it's really just about living, yeah, living a life as if it really mattered moment Mm. by moment, by moment, by moment. And a lot of people, you know, um, a lot of people can really see some incredible results once they get into a habit of practicing, um, and, and using, obviously consistency um, to eventually see results. And, you know, there, there is a lot of compelling research and conducted research and scientific, um, you know, evidence behind mindfulness as well and the impacts it's, that it's created on, on people's lives too. So um, it, you know, it, it is, it is difficult to achieve um, without um, practice. That's for sure. Yeah. And going back to this whole, this argument, I suppose that mindfulness is just a bit of a, is a bit like mindlessness. Like you're basically just not doing anything to, I suppose, challenge the status quo Uh, to that. I'd say it's not about that. It's about understanding the world around you and your, and also better understanding what you can control and what you can't control. And it's definitely not making you powerless. It's certainly not making you feel like, Oh, don't need to worry about the, the pain of the world. Don't need to worry about, you know, the issues that are surrounding us right now. It's if anything, it's more about realizing what you can do to look after yourself without, I suppose, falling victim to the same old routine of hustle, hustle, hustle. I have to make money. I have to look after all these things. I have to tick boxes. If anything, it makes you take a step back and realize what matters right now and helps you line your ducks up in a row, so to speak. Yeah. And, and just being fully present in, in what's actually happening around you in that, this particular moment, this current moment, 
Correct. And we will actually leave you a practice or a mindfulness exercise for you guys in our episode that you'll find, you'll find a link and we'll share some uh, mindfulness hacks for you guys that you can try and practice. And we'd love to hear your feedback from them for those of you that um, may or may not have either practiced mindfulness or you might not know where to start. We'll be sharing some links below in our episode as well. So stay tuned for that as well. And if you like those hacks, don't call us hacks because we think we know about mindfulness and how it helps us. And otherwise that's mindfulness in a wrap. Uh, What now? What now? You guys can catch us on the Apple store on Spotify, YouTube, and our social media channels on Facebook and Instagram. On our next episode, we'll be discussing everything regarding education and teaching. A topic you know so much about. Absolutely, Ken. (laughs) (laughs) All right, guys. I think that's enough on today's topic of mindfulness. It's a hard one to talk about because obviously it means so much to different people. And it's, you know, it's one of those things where I think you can only really appreciate it after you've given it a proper bang. So that's our two cents done. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks so much for listening guys. And we're excited to share our next episode with you as well. So have a great week and we'll catch you soon. Bye. Bye.